Hey everyone, welcome back and welcome to episode eight of season three of Whiskey Queens. This week we're still talking about scotch. I'm going to be drinking Brook Laddie's The Classic Laddie, while Paul will be handling drunk history. Don't forget, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe and check us out at whiskeyqueens.com, at the Whiskey Queens on Instagram, and don't forget to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and here's the show. Oh, I think I did okay. You did fabulous. How are you? I'm here, girl. How are you? I Good. How's everyone doing? Welcome to episode eight. Dear God, episode mm-hmm. eight. I was listening to episode one in the car. So by the way, season everyone- Season three or season one? Season three, episode one, because uh, Brendan keeps talking about how he has to catch up, has to listen, has to catch up, has to listen. So I decided to help him in that process when I went on my liquor finding adventure this weekend. Um, how was it to listen to yourself in the car? really frustrating because I'm still finding that I am louder than you. So I still have some editing work to do. Um, mm. So I apologize to anyone who might be listening to us, who is constantly turning the volume up and down as you listen to the two of us. I'm going to work on that. Yeah. It's because you have a professional mic and I'm a cheap bastard. So I, maybe for your birthday, I'll get you a microphone. Maybe it's coming up. Oh my God. And then you know what's going to happen? We're going to have like a six episode arc where I have to learn how to fucking talk into the mic and not gesticulate wildly while I talk. And it's just going to be you going in and out and in exactly, and, out. and then it's going to it's going to defeat the whole purpose of everything. <laughs> but anyway, welcome everybody. We're super excited you're here. Uh, why are you drinking this week, Nicholas? Because I'm back from being on vacation, and I don't wanna. I don't want to be an adult anymore. A girl preach. I don't like. How do I unsubscribe? Um, That's how I feel. So I I popped my bottle, and I didn't actually pour anything out of it. So. Oh my God. Oh, well, we're just we're popping hard at this show. Gonna pour myself be, some good stuff. It's gonna be a real good episode, everybody, with all these bottle pops at the beginning. It's it's gonna be good. Um, so that's why I'm drinking as I'm like licking my fingers here, uh, because I just got back from being on PTO for a week, and I don't want to adult anymore. Why are you drinking? I'm drinking one <laughs> because I like to drink. Like I say, every podcast, and I'm trying to make sure I say it correctly this time, because I like drinking. And two, uh, I think now the reason I'm drinking and I'm enjoying it so much is because you were licking your fingers on the podcast. And it's like, everyone can hear you. Yep, I know. Everyone can hear you lick your fingers. (laughs) That's why I said it. And I'm celebrating that with a cheers. That's why I'm drinking. That made my day. And my my day has just been a hot mess of work, so... I'm happy to have provided some comedic value to your uh, to your afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you drinking? I know I'm talking about whiskey later on, but what are you drinking this week? So you were talking about your job this week is to talk about the new scotch and give all the day-to-day details about that. Mm-hmm. My job this week is just to get hammered and talk about history. Okay. Maybe not so much hammered, but a little tipsy and talk about history. Um, and I uh, elected to drink something from my bar that I've had for a while. It's the Talisker Select Reserve Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. If you want to learn more about this whiskey, y'all can travel back in time to season one, episode two, and don't judge us too harshly. Yeah, please don't. I still didn't have the audio down then, and I still don't have it down now. Yeah, we also like, we rambled, we were new, we were learning. Yep. Yeah. We're getting better with age. As most things do, including whiskey. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, do you want to kick us off with a little drunk yeah. history? Are you yeah, there I yet? Forgot. I forgot it's my job. 
me, tell us more. My job is just a drink and, and shout in the microphone and make editing more difficult. Yes, that's what I like to do. I like to make your life more challenging since I feel like mine is already there. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that sounds, everyone, my life is great. Let me just clarify. Like, let me, I sounded super dramatic and whatnot. Anyway, my job this week besides the rambles I am giving you, is to fill your life with a little more Scottish drunk history. Bring it. So, Nicholas, my dear co-host over here, uh, left off last episode talking about uh, the Excise Act passed by Parliament in 1823, which basically eased restrictions on licensed licensed distilleries uh, in the UK. Uh, setting uh, more favorable, uh, God, I can't even read. This is where I am right now. Wow. Setting more favorable conditions for the running of distilleries and really enabling um, distilling. Ooh, that was a long pause. Distilling to become a profession that earns real in- income. So as a result of this, what ended up happening, I'm doing a quick recap here. What ended up happening was uh, a consolidation of approximately 14,000 stills in operation, both legal and illegal, that dropped down to 200 in less than 20 years. And by, I believe that's supposed to be distilleries, but I think I wrote stills. Um, I remember it being kind of said the same way. So if you okay. kind of equate a, a still to a distillery, give or take, yeah. So you're dropping from 14,000 down to, God, 200 in 20 years. Yeah, but that's also because it became it became less of for most people, I think I said this last episode, became less of a side hustle for most people and more of a job, yes. right? Which changes the equations. Anyway, several key events helped to really increase the popularity of Scotch whiskey uh, into the turn of the 20th century. So basically the first golden era of Scotch, we can equate to the mid, you know, the 1800s to about the early 1900s, right? So 1831, uh, you had the introduction of the coffee or patent still, which is a continuous still by Aeneas Coffee. Nicholas talked a little bit about that uh, uh, last episode, but if you want to learn more about it, y'all can go to episode five of this season. I hear rehash everything, okay? (laughs) So take a listen to that if you want to know more. Here's a quick recap, because I know some of y'all are going to give me shit if I don't tell you stuff. Uh, The coffee still operates continuously, which makes it less expensive and faster to run. Yep. And it allows uh, the production of higher strength spirit. And basically the Irish, because Aeneas Coffee started this mofo up in Ireland, and they were like, F you and your your continuous still over here, okay? We like our pot stills. They're the best. We don't want your technology. Go take us somewhere else, okay? And Aeneas said, you know what? I'll do that. I'm gonna take you to Scotland, okay? And so he took it to Scotland and those mofos in Scotland were like, listen, we love this. We want more of it. We wanna make all the scotch. We wanna fucking dominate the world, okay? And so that's what happened. I love this dramatic retelling. Yes, Aeneas, <laughs> give us your copy. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's the dramatic readings by Paul. <laughs> um, which leads us to 1860 and the Spirits Act, which was passed and allowed for the first time the blending of spirits under bond without penalty, uh, payment of duty. And it allowed storage of blended spirits in vats and the filling of casks with blended spirit in bond. And that, so basically, let me take a step back for a moment. So there are a series of things, about three things that four, we'll say four, 
that led to the rise of Scotch whiskey during this period, the, the first golden era, which was one we talked about, which was the uh, Excise Act. We talked about the introduction of the coffee still, the Spirits Act. And then in around 1880, the- oh, I can't wait for this. Oh, fuck. <laughs> the- uh, Phylloxera? Phylox, Phylox, yes. The phylloxera beetle. I listened to this pronunciation 158 times before this goddamn podcast. You give me three sips of whiskey and I'm like, (laughs) beetle. Um, Yes. The phylloxera beetle, phylloxera, that's what it is. Beetle destroyed wine and cognac production in France. Holy shit, everybody. Uh, Causing a huge shortage and basically reducing the, the stocks that people had in their cellars basically down to nothing. Uh, in subsequent years, which really opened the market for scotch to sort of fill that market, particularly for cognac okay. uh, around the world. And that sort of helped, these things sort of helped to really build up the first golden era of scotch whiskey, where by 1898, there were 165 distilleries across Scotland that were producing and exporting whiskey. So, which, you know, like every other story we have told thus far throughout our entire podcast. Whiskey is often a journey of highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And the first low period or the first bust that uh, Scottish whiskey sort of endured happened because, uh, you know, happened in the early 1900s was a production of a number of different things, just like Ireland and the U.S. and everything else. Uh, First was the Pattinson crash. And you're like, what's the Pattinson crash? Tell me about it. I'm going to tell you about it. And uh, two brothers who basically did some extravagant spending on advertising. They bought, they, they had stakes in like some whiskey distilleries or whatever, but they also spent a shit ton of money sort of advertising and, and pushing Scottish whiskey. Basically led to an overvaluation of stocks and Scottish whiskey at the time. And they were both found guilty of embezzlement, embezzlement and fraud in 1901 Uh what ended up happening as a result of their uh conviction was it sort of had a domino effect in the market because people because they were like huge marketers right and like pushing scotch uh in every form fashion saying everyone wants scotch we gotta sell scotch with someone's scotch everyone wants that okay um and it really had the public or the purchasing public the purchasing the public. purchasing public <laughs> not just the public but the purchasing public uh really question sort of product quality and the true demand for scotch you know both in the country and worldwide yeah right when you have these two like well-renowned advertisers you're like whoop, whoop, we lied to everybody okay um, <laughs> sorry about it yeah and then that sort of was the initial moment right yeah. and then you had world war one you had prohibition in the u.s you had the stock market crash of the 29 you had the great depression and world war ii you know all these things which were huge factors in you know the dive of whiskey production in ireland and the u.s and canada right obviously hit scotland as well and it hit the industry hard but like every other industry we've talked about thus far they had resurgences and their second golden era was from the 50s to the 70s and largely was 19, excuse me, 1950s to the 1970s and was largely a result of sort of single malt being marketed as a brand. Uh, and it really helped to spark the expansion. And it started with 
Glenn Fiddick. There you go. I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> in 1963, which uh, they also, Glenn Fiddick was actually one of the first distillers in Scotland to open a visitor center in 69. That's like, come on, folks, learn, listen, drink. We want you, okay? That's smart. Yeah. So then we go to the, the bust part, do, do. Oh. Uh, and that was really Picard uh, as a result of the economic recession that created more supply of whiskey than demand in Scotland and the world. Uh, and it resulted in what the press ended up calling the whiskey lock. Uh, and it led, the largest it led to the largest whiskey company at the time, which was Distillers Company Limited, to close something like 22 distilleries over a couple of years. Wah, wah. It was like, we're contracting again, everybody. Uh, and then again, a resurgence occurred. Mostly because everyone and their mom wants to drink whiskey now. You know, this is the 90s, the 2000s, the resurgence of whiskey across the globe. Yeah. Canada, Ireland, the U.S., everybody's like, we want it, we want it. Um, yeah. It led to the resurgence internationally and basically the rise of craft distilling. That was my point. The, the rise of craft distilling. Uh, and a couple of things sort of happened in, over time during this expansion period from the 90s to present day. And that was, as we had discussed also in season one, episode two, where I talk about Talisker, which I'm drinking, was when we also talked about some of the corporate overlords, one of them being Diageo. And in 2012, Diageo heavily, heavily, heavily invested uh, in buying up a shit ton of scotch distilleries in Scotland to the tune of like $1.3 billion. I think it was like over 40 distilleries that they sort of scooped up at the time. Uh, and so they were like, we love it. We think the world's gonna love it. We're gonna buy it, we're gonna help it out, okay? Um, and that's what they did. And then you also have other people coming into the market like Pernod Ricard, Brown Foreman, were among some of the other corporate overlord players in, in Scotland, or are, I shouldn't say was, they all are. Let's be real here. Uh, and I thought I'd just share some interesting facts and figures that I got from the the Scotch Whiskey Association, and these are all related to 2020. So 36 bottles of Scotch whiskey are shipped from Scotland to 166 markets around the world each second. Holy shit. Yeah, we love our whiskey in the world, okay? That equates to about 1.14 billion bottles a year. That's a lot of damn whiskey. That's a lot of whiskey. As a result, Scotch whiskey exports are worth $5.28 billion in 2020, slightly down from 2019, you know, to be expected to some degree. Yeah. Uh, but huge, still a huge part of the UK economy. Like, let's be honest here. More than 10,000 people are directly employed by the Scotch whiskey industry in Scotland alone. And over 40,000 jobs across the UK support the industry. She ain't small. No. And I'm wondering, because we've kind of been on this whiskey climb over the course of the last few decades. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, like, when does the bubble pop at some point again with like distilling and craft distilling? And are we going to oh, see another bust? Yeah. yeah. Like oh. at some point, are we going to see another bust with like the popularity of whiskey? Like it doesn't seem like craft distilling and like craft cocktail making and artistry sure. cocktails is going away anytime soon. But 
inevitably it always does. Like people pivot towards a different drink or something happens in the world where they moved on to something else for a while. So we like, we want our clear spirits again. Yeah, like we all want to go back to vodkas and gins. Oh, I, I God. do not, I do not. I like gin. I do like gin. Um, Which I thank you for, thank you. You're Partially. Yeah, no, I do like a good gin. We've talked about that before. And I feel like we might have to like revisit some gins in later episodes. Yeah, and just so the listeners are aware, uh, it was some house party that we were at back back in the old days when we were probably dating. Who knows? Oh my God. Um, that, <laughs> That's that usually on the podcast, by the way. Well, who cares? Uh, that you were like, here, just try this gin and ginger ale. And I was like, oh, this is actually toasty. Mm-hmm. And then like everything else in my life, well, that sounds terrible. Uh, I shouldn't leave it that way. Uh, I was going to say it led to a spiraling effect, right? Where, <laughs> no, it's a, it, similarly like you sort of start and you're like, well, this ain't so bad. So then you explore it a little more and you're like, actually, I do like some gins. And now I fucking was slamming back dry gin martinis on Saturday at dinner. Slamming you, back's a little dramatic, but. You do love a gin martini for sure. I do love a gin martini. Um, we recently bought our friend, well, not recently, it was actually a Christmas gift. We bought our friend, Michelle, our mutual friend, um, a whiskey, no, not a whiskey, a gin making kit. So Ooh. you kind of buy the vodka of your choice and then they give you all the things you need to like distill it with juniper and different types of mm. things. So she has two bottles of gin ready to go for us to go taste this coming weekend. Mm. Yeah, I'm way into that. Um, but there's a couple of really good distilleries that we've talked about that also produce gin. And we've talked about how it kind of gets them off the ground in the beginning, but like, I would love to talk about Dingle Gin and a couple of the other distilleries out there and kind of do a- I have not had, so 1-8 Distilling here in DC uh, that makes district made whiskey, mm-hmm. the rye that we talked about on the show. Yeah. Uh, their clear spirit of choice is gin. Okay. And so I don't think I've had their gin, but I'll have to try it. Anyway, totally on a gin tangent, everybody. I do have two other facts I want to share with you about Scottish whiskey, and then we can we can wrap this segment of Paul's randomness up. Uh, one is that currently, or as of 2020, I shouldn't say currently, as of 2020, there were approximately 22 million casks that were l- maturing in warehouses in Scotland. 22 million? Yes. Goddamn. That's a small island. Yes, girl. They like their whiskey, okay? Okay. And... There were 134 operating Scotch distillers across Scotland in 2020. Sweet Jesus. Yeah, a lot. Uh, Okay, hey, they're good at it. Do your thing. Hey, I'm enjoying mine and you're enjoying yours. I'm really enjoying mine. Um, So this isn't actually the bottle that I said I was going to drink, not that I actually named it last week, but what I had in mind was the same brand, the same distillery, but it was the Port Charlotte um, what I'm drinking is the classic Laddie, which is a from the distillery Brook Laddie. So they also make something called uh, Port Charlotte, and that part of their brand is heavily peated. And a, I'm not a huge fan of smoke in my whiskey or in my scotch. And we had just talked about peated whiskey, so I went with a different one, which is the mm-hmm. classic Laddie. So it is an unpeated Isla single malt scotch whiskey. So that's what I'm drinking. It is just as pretty as a bottle because it comes in a beautiful like teal tin. And then it's this like awesome teal bottle. It's real pretty. It's real heavy too. Um, 
it's really good. I wasn't sure what I was gonna, how I was gonna feel about it because I've never really had great experiences with scotches. But since you've turned me on to a couple of them, I'm starting to like them more and more and more. Big fan. They have a time and a place. They do. And this, I think you'd really like it because it's not peated and it has this really crisp, really refreshing taste to it. Um, our friend Becky actually messaged me when she saw that I was going to be talking about it and was like, it's delicious. So high praise. I think um, you'd like the one I'm drinking too, by the way. Okay. I think you would like both the Oban I have here on my bar. Yes, I said that right. Yep. And the Tasker. I paused for a moment because I was like, did I fucking say Oban? Dear Jesus. The Oban 14 that I finished last week was fantastic. Big fan. Um, but I think they would be really interesting to also eventually buy the Port Charlotte. It's an expensive bottle. So I'd have to kind of save that for later. Um, We're going to have to get you Talisker. And the only reason I say that is because it's, from my recollection from season one, episode two, it's the only distiller on the Isle of Skye. Okay. Yeah. Mm, okay. Keep that in our back pocket. Um, but so the classic Laddie, 50% ABV, cost me about 60 bucks, unpeated Isla single malt scotch whiskey. Um, so the classic Laddie, what's really interesting about this is it is not a strict recipe. It is what they consider at the distillery a philosophy. Uh, so they're not interested in a super consistent or a super uniform taste. So every year it changes slightly with the variety of barley and kind of the increasing and wider range of casks that they can get their hands on. So each batch of the classic Laddie will be slightly different from the last. Uh, the only real goal is to stay within kind of the sort of classical floral style of the distillery. So I'm going to preface this with, I love this scotch. I'm really, really, really happy I bought this bottle. The marketing wrapped around the like nose palette finish on their website is a lot. It's a lot. So I'm going to read you a couple of ditties. Um, the character mm -hmm as articulated by the website, smooth as pebbles in a pool. It's clean, fresh, and lively with both oak and the grain in perfect harmony, written by a marketer. Color, sunlight on the fields of early summer barley. Okay, I'm gonna say it is a light straw colored. It's beautiful, um, but there's, there's some poetry going on here. Uh, the nose, I'm going to skip some of the poetry and go right into what they're describing because I think it's spot on. Um, barley sugar with hints of mint to me, I get mint and honey tea. Like when I first sip it, it mm. like it's it smells like mint and honey. It tastes like mint and honey. Um, and then they talk about how it kind of moves into these floral notes. So they mention wildflowers, buttercups, daisies. I don't get super floral. I get tea. I get mint. Um, but it's it's really interesting because you also get kind of some of the salt and some of the brine from being so close to the Atlantic. Um, on the palate, they talk about it being refined and refreshing, sweet oak, barley arriving, sending the taste buds into rapture. Again, marketing poetry. Um, the fruits from distillation on the Atlantic breeze, and they pop on the tongue like champagne bubbles. It's a lot. Um, it really is good, though. And I would never think of this, but they talk about a combination of ripe green fruits, brown sugar, and sweet malt on the closing of the taste. Mm. I've never thought of green fruit, but it goes like the the concept of like green fruit goes with what i'm tasting in this glass um, but it still has kind of that fresh salty almost citrusy briny stuff going on um, 
the finish they say is unforgettable. I think the finish is kind of medium. Um, it doesn't linger for too long. There's very little burn. There's a little bit of a bite when you first sip it on the tip of your tongue that it disappears pretty quickly. Um, but the actual finish and taste on it is probably medium as far as I'm concerned. Um, they also give it a mood, which I'm not even gonna bother reading. The really cool part about this is I think their website officially takes my favorite technology out of all the things we've talked about. Like we've talked about Pinhook. Uh, we talked about mm -hmm. a different distillery and kind of their flavor profile or their flavor wheel you could create. Their website allows you to enter the code from your bottle and look up the exact barrels that were used in making your bottle. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So the actual classic laddie has a flavor profile they try and stick within. And then when you enter the code for your bottle, they also give you a flavor wheel that is similar to what they're aiming for, but might be slightly different here and there. So you can actually kind of compare your bottle's profile to kind of the profile they aim for every year or what you can expect from a general bottle of the classic laddie. Um, so I'm going to actually give out the code for my bottle, which is 20 backslash 163. So if you go to their website and enter that code, you can see the listing of all of the barrels. And then you can see the flavor profile that it develops based off of the barrels that they used when they did the blending. It's really cool. Uh, so for mine, it is a vatting of 82 casks, four vintages, three barley types, and nine cask types. It was bottled in 2020. Okay. Yeah, it, it's a really cool site to be able to kind of go through and see the different types of barrels that were used, and it's cool. Um, so there's a quote about the impact of the sea on the flavor profile, which I thought was really nice. Uh, so it says, quote, fully exposed to the power of the Atlantic storms, the salt-soaked air permeates the very fabric of the distillery. Um, a fresh marine salt citrus tang in the, is the signature accent of the classic laddie, and those who have been here will understand the profound contribution of the Hiberian island home to the development of this great single malt. I think that is spot on, because you definitely get like salty lime a little bit in the profile and it's yeah. really good. Um, they also talk about how they do not add caramel coloring or use chill filtering and they talk about it in an aggressive way. Um, okay. they, are, they are not a fan of the fact that people add caramel coloring. Uh, they talk about caramel coloring being used by scotch distillers to kind of standardize the color of their bottles from batch to batch to batch and how chill filtering is used to remove oils from the whiskey that prevent clouding, um, mm -hmm. but it also can impact flavor. They don't do either of those things. They would rather have something be slightly cloudy and not impact the flavor. Um, and they would rather something be slightly different year to year because it speaks to the different barleys and the different processes they used to arrive sure. at that particular batch. So I, I really appreciated that. I mean, yeah, um, we are, I mean, I do too. Yeah. I mean, there's a time and a place for both. Like I'm, I'm here to play devil's advocate or, mm -hmm. or political neutrality, uh, something to that effect, right? Because one of the things that, as you were saying that, it reminded me of, I was reading through our delightful book. I don't even know where the fuck I put it in my house. But um, I was reading through it this morning over breakfast, trying to prepare for this episode. Um, and I was reading about chill filtering. And that's oh, what yeah. sort of, yeah, yeah. And sort of why, and the caramel coloring. Yep. And sort of why they do it, but. Yeah, and I get it. Like we, as a people, are very visual. So if something doesn't have the same color it had last time, if something has a bit of cloudiness in it, I well, or anyone might reach for a different bottle purely because also, it's cloudy. Let's also say to our like say to our listeners too that let's make the the clarity here that the vast like 
the only place I may fuck this up, but the, the only place I believe that outlaws is a bit of a strong word that doesn't allow you to do caramel coloring is the United States. Um, so I there is there's some... Ireland uses caramel coloring either. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure Ireland does know. not. Well, I think like I feel like even I feel like it's regulated in a lot of places. Yeah. Like how much. But I know Canada does, Japan, uh, Scotland. And I think that speaks to us as consumers more than it speaks to the distillers. That true. But also it's because part of, if memory serves me right for reading this little ditty, is it's part of that the vast majority of bourbon or whiskey in in the United States is matured in new American oak barrels which Mm -hmm. allows for the absorption of all of the oak and all the wood and that helps color it over time yeah whereas a lot of other places are using x bourbon or sherry or other barrels that have been utilized before yeah doesn't pull as much color from the wood flavor yes color no yep yeah Yeah, in different flavors different types of colors so yeah and so I get why they do it, but I also appreciate kind of the purest mentality that they're taking here. Um, sure. So the bottles, these bottles are 50% ABV versus the standard 40 to 46. Mm. So they also also recommend like, give it a little bit of water if you want. Um, no shame there at all. Um, the barley is also 100% Scottish grown, which is another one of their like philosophical tenants, if you will, at the distillery. So they try and keep it as local as much as they possibly can. And they're really proud of that. Um, the head distiller, Adam Hanette, I believe is his last name, who's responsible for creating each batch of the classic Laddie, has to ensure that it meets the requirements of that classic floral, elegant house style, uh, which he does by blending a variety of casks, lots of sampling, lots of no- nosing. I want this man's job. Uh, and then quick little ditty on the history of the distillery. Uh, it was built in 1881 by the Harvey brothers, William, John, and Robert on the westernmost part of the island. Uh, the Harveys owned two Glasgow distilleries since 1770, uh, and they used an inheritance to build the third distillery, which became Brooklatic, uh, Brooklady, sorry. Uh, designed by John, engineered by Robert, and financed by William and other family members. By 1881, the distillery or was built and considered state of the art. Um, older distilleries on the island were repurposed for like from old farm buildings. This was built to be a distillery. Um, and it was actually constructed from stones taken from the seashore. And it was designed to have the most possibly like efficient scotch making is like that they could at the time so the flow and the layout of the entire facility was designed around making scotch not making an old building work for the process of making scotch um they used tall and narrow necked stills to produce a more pure spirit which is kind of the opposite of the style that the other distillers in the area were using Uh, it was run by william after a fallout with the other two brothers the distillery um, before he actually, I'm sorry, before it was even completed, there was a follow-up between the two brothers um, and William did essentially most of the running at that point. By 1934, there was a fire um, followed by his death in 1936. And over the next 40 years, it changed ownership a bunch of times, um, which resulted in a couple of corporate overtakes. Um, it narrowly avoided closure until 1994 when it was officially shut down. Mm-hmm. So 
it was then purchased by a group of private investors led by Mark Reiner of Murray McDavid in 2000. Um, Jim McEwen, who had worked at Bowmore Distillery since he was 15, was hired as a master distiller and production director. And then between January and May of 2001, the distillery was essentially dismantled and then reassembled. Um, a lot of the Victorian decor was kept intact. A lot of the equipment was kept intact. Um, most of the original Harvey machinery is still being used today at the distillery which I think oh, wow. is really cool that they've kind of kept all that in place. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no computers in use in the production process. It's completely controlled by skilled workers who essentially pass information along orally and largely measure process using dipsticks and flotation devices. Like there's I not, it. It, like it's a very, like it's the original process as much as they can keep it the original process. Uh, so in July of 2012, it was announced that Remy Quantro reached an agreement with them to buy the distillery for the sum of $58 million. Wow. Yeah. That's pounds. Pounds, sorry. 58 million pounds. Samesies. A uh, few more yeah. things. <laughs> no. It's not the samesies. <laughs> it was a lot of fucking money. It's, um, mo it's more dollars. It's more than, dollars. Yeah, it's like 60-some dollars, 60-some million dollars. Is, yeah. uh, I can't fathom that amount of money. A um, couple of other fun tidbits. They are the largest employer on the island. Uh, their mm. commitment to the island has resulted in the construction of the only commercially scaled bottling hall in the area. Um, they hope to be carbon neutral by 2025, and they are actively trying to reduce the amount of packaging they use in all of their products, which ties into their belief in sustainability. Uh, so when cool. you buy these in the States, they come in tins. But if you buy them online, you have the option to purchase it without a tin uh, to kind of cut down on some of the packaging that they're using. Yeah. So they have an eye All on right. sustainability. So sustainability points for them as well. There you go. But it's good. I'm probably on my like fourth or fifth ounce at this point. That's and good. I would highly recommend this one. Like I said, about 60 bucks. Definitely a little bit more pricey than we typically purchase, but it's a really good bottle. And it's something that you would definitely want to share with folks because it's, it's a fun experience. Like, is it? It, well, no, I don't want to share with anyone, but. No, I meant, is it more pricey than the stuff we normally purchase? I mean, maybe more... a little bit. I mean, the bottle I bought last week was 70 something. So, okay. Um, okay. So we're, we're slightly moved. We're moving in the direction of pricier bottles at the moment. The bougie um, bitch direction. The bougie yes. bitch direction. Um, but next week, no, next week is going to be a short episode because you'll be traveling. Yes. True. So we're going to do a little bonus ditty next week for y'all on yeah. what? TBD. Yeah, this is going to be the to hold you over while Paul is traveling the the states. Could um, you please say that again in a Scottish accent? No. Okay, fine. <laughs> I refuse. Uh, but the week after that, we will officially have our first ever guest who will be coming on the show to talk about a scotch. Um, so we've talked about Becky before. Becky was kind enough to give us her time when we Becky. were learning about Slain. And now she's going to come on and do most of the talking and tell us about one of the scotches she also reps as well. And I am it's super so excited. great that she's going to join us. And also so great that I don't have to over prepare for an episode. <laughs> it's going to um, be good. It's going to be great. But also, as, we, as I like to say, mm. Uh, also, I don't know why I made that like shocking sound. Like I didn't know this was happening. Like, oh, Becky's coming. I, I appreciated, what? I appreciated that. Um, everyone should be excited that Becky is coming because it's going to be a good episode and, uh, we will muddle through our first ever guest on the show. It'll yeah, be three of us. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be interesting faux show. 
Um, she did tell me that I'm just making more work for myself editing, which I will admit to you because it's probably in one of the chats and in Instagram that you can see where I said, you already give me enough work editing. So what's one more? Oh, just want to be honest. Love you. I'm, I'm not saying that I, I don't deny that I am a challenge at times. <laughs> Ever so rarely you present a, an editing challenge which I'm happy to rise to. Occasionally I do. I know I do for a fact. Because <laughs> uh, I do have my moments where I pause and I'm like, um, I'm going to scratch all that. Okay, okay. I really enjoy this. I'm going to go continue drinking while I go edit all Me these good times. Too. I'm not going to edit, but I'm going to continue drinking. That's fine. Um, all right. So we're going to catch you all next week for a mini-sode, if you will. And then uh, we'll see you in two weeks with a guest. Yes. Uh, it's been good. It's been great. Bye, everyone. Bye.